The street is where we create. We call it suburbanpreneurship. Mixing big company resources with an entrepreneurial spirit. This is Electric People. What's up, Electric People? It's Ty Williams, and this week we have Parker Stevens on the show. Parker Stevens is the VP of Revenue Strategy and Analytics at Sunrun. He is probably one of the most knowledgeable and strategic minds in the entire industry. He's gotten better and better over time. And the more, uh, you know, I've developed in friendship and a working relationship with Parker, the better I've gotten in the industry and the more I've learned. One of my favorite things about Parker is he is so multifaceted. He's a great friend. He's got a lot of diverse interests. He's very articulate. He's funny. Uh, it's almost like the more, the longer you know him, the more you learn about him and the more uh, it kind of like portals to his personality you find. Um, if you're in the solar industry, you'll want to tune into Parker because Sunrun listens to him to make their strategic decisions. He's generally right in all things that he does. And this is a fascinating and fun conversation with my friend Parker. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks for sitting down with me at the very end of a long couple of days. Appreciate it. Yeah. Happy to be here. I was waiting for you to ask me. I was like, you know, if you've ever been to a roller rink and they do snowball, <laughs> you've been around the rink three or four times and passed me up. Yeah, it's more my preparation though. You're always ready, and I gotta like, <laughs> I gotta like rise up to your level. Um, so you're asking me before we started this, and you know, you're cracked a sugar-free Red Bull, and I have an unopened, very tasty-looking Ultra Watermelon Monster Energy. So let me see. I am from. I think 2000 and like six clean off energy drinks. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't know if I should say clean because if it's unsafe for me to drive, I'll drink a Red Bull. Yeah, that makes or sense. Or if I get a migraine, mm. I'll drink one. So I've probably had seven <clears throat> since 2006. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I got really addicted to the Sobe No Fear uh, energy drink. Like you could crack it and I could smell it and I would instantly feel better. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm the exact opposite. I hadn't had ener any energy drink to, up until like 2012. And now? And now I have, you know, a few a week maybe. All right. Uh, I think it's, I think it's kids. I attribute that to kids and lack of sleep. And I got to come home and still be dad and not take work home with me and be tired, lazy, not fun person. I think it's, I think it's the taurine. But there's something that like the heaviness, like in your eyes, uh -huh. that the second that drink touches your mouth goes away. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Notice it next time. So what do you do? What's been your replacement for the last? Oh, it goes away. Years? I stopped needing it. But when oh, I was, really? I, I used to drink two or three of them a day. Wow. And um, whenever I drank them, it would immediately go away. So, I, dude, I had headaches and all that kind of stuff when I was like trying to get off it. Trolls. But it's a crazy thing because I don't like the feeling of needing something. Like mm -hmm. I don't like the feeling of yeah. need, needing a drink or needing a sure. whatever. You know, I don't drink coffee. So it's like I, I don't yeah. ever have anything that I have to have. Yeah. And it got to the point where I couldn't sell. It was summertime. I couldn't sell or I couldn't feel like awake without it. And so, um, but I also noticed that it's, it gives me anxiety. Like not many things give me anxiety, but energy drinks give me anxiety. Addiction in and of itself gives you anxiety. Gives anxiety. I'm, I have anxiety about you should being addicted. So then I'm a, then I have anxiety when exactly. I don't that's, have my that's, substance. Uh, I'm reading a book called, I believe it's called the dopamine effect, but essentially anything that you do to just release dopamine in your brain above and beyond normal everyday behaviors or functions causes a anxiety because you're planning out your next dopamine hit 
And so you have to like navigate your life around whatever that is, whether it's playing video games or hmm. energy drinks. You have a, a decision tree that forces you to to make decisions around that addiction that you don't even realize. That yeah, I totally anxiety. agree. Yeah, we were talking to Adrian Grenier. Actually, we just aired his um, episode. Yeah. And he was talking about being addicted to all kinds of different things. And he, the example he gave, I can't remember if this was on our show or if it was on another one that I listened to in preparation. But he would say, you know, like, if you like snacks and candy and stuff, he's like, you'll, like, put it in places. Like, you'll have, like, your little stash in your office and your little stash in your car. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I was like, dude, I totally do that. Like, I got, like jelly beans in the car and I got like my different like things in the office and stuff anyway so yeah so I for my listeners I've instructed Parker that if you hear this can crack and me go into it that you got to come out and pull me out because I could go completely off of go off. energy drink cliff yeah <laughs> um so uh you I've often joked slash not joked that uh we need an insurance policy on you mm. uh Parker Stevens if he wasn't at this company would be in a bad way um, your formal title is VP of strategy. What is your formal title? Uh, VP of revenue strategy and analytics, revenue strategy and analytics. Basically you tell the company what to focus on. Try Yeah. Try to try to narrow our prioritization to optimize volume and unit economics. Yeah. And for you guys that haven't had the pleasure of talking to Parker, you pretty much know everything about every corner of the business. It's insanely impressive to me. And so as a result, you have a lot of people asking your opinion. A lot of um, executives put a lot of weight into what you advise and what you think. And so for that reason, I actually think if ever you didn't work here, we'd be in real trouble, hence the insurance policy. <laughs> I don't know how we get that done, but maybe there's like a business idea for that. It's for like I, I insure, I insure irre- irreplaceable people. Yeah. yeah. J-Lo had an insurance policy on her body for a while. Maybe it's like an, uh, an option against human capital. Yeah. Something like that. And then it could, it could fluctuate based on the amount of like physical risk you take oh, and stuff God. like that. Interesting. Um, and so I think a lot of people know that side of you, but I don't think a lot of people know that you were voted funniest in your high school. Wow. You remembered that tie. Yeah. Parker, it's like the thing I love most about you. Yeah. The, the work day ends, perhaps we're sitting at a fire somewhere and the, and, and, and the real Parker comes out. Yeah. yeah I, what high school? Ryan, where you grew up? I, uh, f- I grew up in Kaysville, Utah, so it was Davis High School. Davis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Darts. Darts. Yeah. That's My right. wife was a Viking. Oh, r- that's right. Heavy rivalry. What year did you graduate? Uh, 07. Okay. She graduated in 04, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's something that I've sh- is either is a strength and a weakness is like I have a really difficult time jumping in and out of compartmentalization uh points in my life right if i'm in analysis mode and you come into my office and start joking around you got to give me like 20 minutes to like come out of you know deep in analysis and if i'm in funny mode and joking around it's really hard for me to go in and work on on something and so um you know most people don't see that that side of me uh, but i would out. argue we were in a meeting today where you said you weren't good at compartmentalizing things and I didn't bring it up because it's already kind of a long meeting. Um, but I would actually argue the opposite. I think you're very good at it. I am good at it. The tra- I'm bad at the transition. You're bad at transitioning. Yeah, and that so, makes sense. And since and if like if, if, and it like nags at me if there's something either at home or at work that I feel like I haven't totally solved, then it'll bleed into that other aspect of my life, and I can't like close off that gap until mm-hmm. there's a resolution. So if you're light and funny and cracking jokes, things are going good at work. I'm light and funny. Projects are projects are sealed. You could say that. I, I, yeah. 
yeah, I, I, that's a good definition. And if I get home and I am immediately fun cool dad, it means I got everything done at work and there's no you know, lag effect. Yeah. Reentry is hard. I always say that to Stacy. Our wives are friends, but I feel like reentry is a skill that any high performer is, is good to work on. Reentry, like you're in work mode and you are this, this super high functioning, super important person here. But then your drive home isn't all that long from where we're sitting. Uh And so then you hit your driveway and it's like, I mean, I know your boys, they're high action. There's a lot going on. Right. And so it's like that transition in that's a, that's a skill. Do you feel like you do a good job at that or a bad job? I feel like I I do a a good job job for my kids, not a good job for my wife and Mm. and everyone, you know, there's different ways of going about that. But yeah, I need to get better at it. The other thing I've noticed too is with high performing individuals is your, as you perform high in one aspect of your life and then you get home, you may, uh, I've noticed myself devaluing the things that other people value because I feel like high performance is only defined one way. And so what do you mean? Like if my wife is like talking to me about, I don't know, her brother-in-law or grocery shopping or at home projects, like that's her life. Like the kids and those things are her life. And I, and I, you know, don't like the fact that sometimes I devalue those things because I think the stuff I'm working on at work is so valuable, but that's her world. And those are valuable things to her and you have to treat them both equally. And so that's something I've been working on. Sounds like you guys are a perfect match though. Right? Like, oh, absolutely. I, I, I've told you this before Ty, but like, um, there's a, uh, uh, a, a psychologist that said, you know, there's a lot of truth to the fact that when a loved one dies, you say a piece of you dies, that you start, when you get close to someone, you start to have your um, character and your personality and your identity start to morph into not only what, who you are as, as an individual, but as a, as as someone else so like like as a unit as a unit so like i lean on my wife and part of the reason that i really depend on her so much is my values don't always line up with my talents right Hmm. but her talents are my values and so hold on explain your values don't always line up with your talents so let me explain so my wife is very very good at thinking of other people when they're out of sight okay people are out of sight out of mind with me i'm not very good at calling them, sure. following up, sending, you know, messages for their birthday or whatever. But, but you value it. But I value it. It's really important to me. Like, I want to be good at that, Got but it. I'm just not good at it. But she is so good at it. And so, like, I take satisfaction and joy in the fact that she's so good at it. And I, like, pat myself on the back because it's, like, part <laughs> of my identity yeah. is her doing that. It's like we did that. And that's so, really cool. And so, like, um, that's something that has been important to me in, in in relationships in my life as I get closer to people I realize when my values don't line up with the things I'm good at or the things I'm actually doing I gravitate to the people who are good at those things because it's a it makes me feel more whole or complete yeah I, I actually I've never heard it articulated that way but I feel exactly the same um, you know my wife is her one of her like superpowers is I'm kind of like you, like I don't multitask well. I actually don't think anybody really multitasks well, but I just know that I don't multitask well, so I kind of don't try. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Stacy's really good at being present, and that's something like, especially like there's so much happening in our industry right now that I feel like, you remember in Click, 
you know the movie click yeah, with adam yeah. sandler oh yeah when he's like in fast forward and his like body was there but his brain kind of dude yeah. i feel like i get like ushered from meeting to meeting and place to place and it's like i don't even know where my head was when that happened because it moves so fast but she is really good at it and so when people compliment stacy on like how great of a mom she is i think i experience the same thing where i'm like I get, I'm proud. Yeah. You feel like, well, I know I, I did, I did do a good job. And even though they're complimenting her. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's interesting. an interesting way to like get a free dopamine hit. Mm. Right. Oh, there we go. Back <laughs> off to of somebody else's, yeah. Yeah. off of somebody else's talents. Yeah. When you say you're working on it, what do you, what do you, how do you work on it? Um, the, the, the talents piece. Or yeah. which, um, I, one is like, there are also things that I value that I'm not good at. And like, uh, I don't have close relationship with someone that some people that are so like identifying those and and working on those is important. Um, uh, the other piece I would say is uh, I'll recognize the people in your life and tell them the things that you do value that they are good at and bring that relationship closer uh, and and bring them into part of your your identity. It's it's interesting, right? I was thinking about this the other days. Like, there's so many forms of proof of your identity, your driver's license, your birth certificate, your thumbprint, whatever. But if somebody asks you, who are you? What do you value? That, like internal question of like, who am I? You can't actually articulate your identity. And so that's we have- That's a crazy thought. So we have to have these tangible items that tell us who we are, but there's no, but explaining to someone who we are is so difficult. And the only way we can do it is I think through defining the relationships that are important in your life and and why you gravitate to those people because that's essentially you know your identities your your values be, and lining those up with your relationships yeah that's that's interesting it's also kind of interesting from like a sales standpoint because um a lot of what we do is we morph to different people right like we, true, we yeah. create relationships and stuff with people but you know the world will tell you hey you're kind of not supposed to judge and you're kind of not supposed to stereotype but I mean, we're on the fifth floor of our corporate building. Behind you is a neighborhood. I'm looking at this neighborhood, and I'm looking at a particular house right across the street in a car. And the way that that house is set up, the car, the clothes that that person's wearing, it, they're telling me something about them. Sure. Right? So it's like, what, what, what clues do you send to people? It's actually kind of a crazy thought. But um, you said that sometimes you, um, you, know, you identify people's values, and you're not always good about bringing it up. But I need to tell you, that I actually disagree with that because some of the most meaningful, like introspective compliments I've ever received, I've received from you. Cause you have this ability to like, you know, when we talk about broad interests and stuff, like you've given me compliments about things that I've never like really articulated or thought about myself. So maybe you're just being a little hard on yourself. Well, well that's the thing is I'm good at, well, is because that is something that I value that I'm not good at is that you are able to express interest in other people and in, 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 in a lot of different activities and things and immediately bridge the gap in familiarity with people and, and develop friendships where if like it's something if they're if someone's talking about something that I don't have a lot of expertise in or have a lot of interest in I, I kind of like tune them out but you have so much curiosity and interest in so many things that you, that doesn't happen to you and you quickly develop relationships uh, at a very fast pace that I that but I wish I could do that and so that's something I value and it's something I lean on you for it's like oh you know Ty Ty interests me to this person and it's like easier to make friends when you're around I hmm. appreciate that see doing it again there it is with those introspective compliments um, so 
you grew up in Kaysville. That's right. And um, born and raised your whole life there. Born, uh, I was, yep. And then I served a mission for my church, came back. Where'd you go? I went to a place called Arizona. Have you heard of it? Arizona. Arizona. Arizona is what yeah, we call yeah. it, but yeah. English speaking. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then I came back, college, uh, worked for Goldman Sachs for a while, and then I moved to San Francisco and took a job at Solar City and have been in renewable energy since then. Okay, so that's, I was trying to draw the link between Solar City. So when I first became aware of you and your work was when you had come over from Solar City. That's right. Um, so maybe talk about how you got involved in solar and what the transition was like to Vivint Solar. Yeah, so I, uh, I actually did, to pay for college, I did door-to-door sales for Pinnacle Security. And so I met some people there. Um, I don't know if I knew that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm searching I, my memory bank, but that's a big deal. Yeah, so how uh, did you do at door-to-door sales for Pinnacle it's Security? It's funny. It's like um, I had—I was really good at getting in the door, but I was so like gullible or too empathetic with people. On you believed their—you believed their hype. You or, believed or their just BS. Like, yeah, we just got a lot going on. Right now. Can they install it tomorrow? And as you know, in alarms, like if you're not installing it now, you're not yeah. installing it ever. What and year I, was this? This was 2011. And what market? Um, Texas. Okay. Yeah, Dallas area. I was just a few hundred miles east in Arkansas. Were just you? doing the same thing. Yeah, so I, would, I remember, like, I had the highest uh, number of, like, I had the biggest gap of welcome calls and installs. Where, like, <laughs> usually that's, like, 90% in alarms. I was, like, 70 or 60% because, oh, yeah, whatever reason, install it tomorrow. I did, I did fine. I paid for college. Um, good learning experience. Developed a lot. How of many? Close How many installs did you do? Do you I don't remember? Know, Sixty or something. Oh, that's good. Yeah, nothing crazy. We used to have this training that I wish I could have given to you in 2011, called "The Nice Guy Isn't Really So Nice," where like you think you're being like nice, we're like, oh yeah, they're leaving right now, but they ended up without an alarm, and if they got an alarm. They probably ended up getting it from someone that wasn't as empathetic as you, <laughs> that didn't do as good of a job, that wasn't training like you. So they actually ended up in a worse scenario. A so trick. by you not being more persistent, you actually put them in a worse yeah, scenario. You're so. right. Yeah, could have used that. Gotten to 90 or 100. Yeah, you know. Yeah, close that gap. And so I, uh, I met a lot of people out there. Um, started uh, one of them being John Frampton, who you know led the door-to-door sales at Solar City. Were you I, on Frampton's team I in was Texas? on Frampton's team, and I'd help. What market were you? Was that, that was, Houston? That was Dow. No, that, Houston was what he always talks about <laughs> with Platinum, right? Everything he that was 2008. Talks, yeah, we yeah, all know about talks that. about as far as like success is 2008 Platinum and comparing what we're doing now to why can't we do it like we did then. But um, uh, yeah, so on the, I did like a lot of the stuff on the back end, like manage like expenses and doing some tax, uh, tax stuff. Um, and so like he, he like remembered that, hmm. I guess. And then I, after college, I went and I worked in um, Goldman Sachs. I did uh, trade ops analytics, essentially helping traders execute trades on time and figuring out problems if they're not. Was that in Salt Lake? I was in Salt Lake, yep. Um, How was that? Did you like that? No, uh, I was getting in there at like 6 a.m., leaving at 7 p.m. And I've heard that from everybody that I know that's worked at Gold. Maybe I only know people that used to work there that don't, that they just kind of treat you like, dispensable heroes right yeah, like, i quickly figured out that your value is more um about how much your perception rather than the reality meaning if it looks like you're working hard you're going to get promoted rather than if you're actually contributing to the business it's just um so i got out of there pretty quick i then it's a weird f- culture for such a like 
results driven business. I know it's bad. Um, it's why they they're having a really hard time retaining and recruiting talent right now. Um, and then I worked for a private wealth management company. It was, uh, it was too predictable, like, you know, put, take the money, put it in this fund, track it, report back to your uh, customers or clients. And there wasn't a ton of like um, creativity that needed to be involved. And so I was looking for something else. And then John called me up, explained solar, they're starting the door-to-door program. Colt Reed was there at the time. Uh, and then I moved to San Francisco. That's how I got it. Is that before you were married? It's before I was married, yeah. Wow. Single guy. Single guy loose in the city. Um, And what was your role when you went to Solar City? Uh, I was a sales analyst was the title. But I mean, we had 60 reps and had to figure out how to make it work. So What year was this? 2014. 14. Yeah. Okay. What month? I don't know, July, August. Okay. So you're, that was, I started six months before you. Maybe really? s- maybe seven, yeah. It's Pretty true. much December of thirteen. Yeah, so I had to figure out like, what's what is success? What are the conversion rates? Are we paying people correctly? What's our retention rate? Because it's all, you know, it was kind of like a startup with inside a big company. Solar City up to that point only had, you know, retail and commercial, which is W two and, um, uh, as you know, and and uh, kind totally of different. A little more predictable, right? A little bit more predictable. They've been doing it for six years. Yeah. Um, we didn't have. We also didn't have a lot of tech resources or anything. So, people were knocking doors with pen and paper, signing people up, right? Um, but we grew that from you know 60 reps to about 1,200 reps, doing 240 megawatts a year. Um, so it was a really good learning experience. That growth must have felt insanely fast. I remember, I remember those early days where the volume, we were like chasing Solar City's volume. But even by today's standards, I mean, that's, did you say 240 a year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot. By, yeah, by the end of 60 megawatts 20, a quarter. So, yeah, 2016 ish, 2017, yeah. I mean, I just remember the first year we did 60 megawatts at Vivint Solar. Remember? And we crossed that finish yeah. line with the engine smoking and the wheels <laughs> off and. That was gnarly. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, looking back, obviously, probably could have done it a lot different. We were growing for growth's sake. Yeah, um, I've learned a lot since then, as you know. So, uh, but it's definitely a good learning experience, and that's how I, you know, try to figure out like w- defining success and and learning through mistakes was good good starting point in the industry for sure. Was that job a lot of? selling like did you have to like make suggestions to the business based on data that you were creating or was it not that yet i mean that's what you do now but did it kind of start there it it largely started there right like um like i'm like we're paying guys this but we're losing most of them in four months so we've got all these costs that go out the door like why are we doing that and so then i try to like figure it out figure it out you know system sizes production what are we charging customers and each kilowatt's not actually worth the same amount. Maybe we should spend more money in Cal, you know, this state or this state. And that uh, was at a time when the pay scales were just blanket pay scales. Yeah. You make the same in that's right uh, East Coast low sun hour market as you would in a like a West Coast high sun hour market, and it was yeah. paid off system size. Yeah, I remember. So I I, I came up with a pay proposal to pay uh, like. $60 or $80 a kilowatt more in California. I'm thinking, oh man, we can really get our competitors here. I remember it was three days later that Vivint Solar announced that. I remember that. California. So you, uh, you guys can thank, thank me for that. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Were uh, you the pay per panel guy? Was that your work? 
I, I, Remember they paid per panel for a while? And they did. That wasn't me, but that was that was part of the game plan, right? Yeah. They paid Home Depot per panel, paid reps per panel. They bought Salivo, which was supposed to have the most efficient Optimized panels. panels yeah. and, and so then you're getting paid. You're installing fewer panels per system, so you're bringing the CAC down and kind of like do a slide of hand and hopefully yeah. nobody notices. But then the Salivo stuff and the uh, Gigafactory in Buffalo never panned out, and the R&D uh, investments were just way too expensive. So... It's crazy to remember that time because a lot of the people that would be listening to this, they, I mean, that wasn't that long ago in a pretty new industry already. And it seems, it seems wild, but we didn't have kind of standard, uh, like baseline understanding of things that are pretty much widely accepted and understood now. Sure. Like what is an account worth, right? Yeah. Like we didn't actually know what um, default rates would be, yeah. right? Like we didn't know we hadn't gone through like different market swings. Sure. Um, I remember we were constantly scared of the, the tax credit going away, yeah. like that kind of stuff. And so that early work of getting in there and understanding it, it surprised me. I actually thought you started before 14 because just of how much you know, it seems like you've just known this industry since the very beginning. But what are some of the things that like stood out? Like, cause when SolarCity went out of business to a lot of us, that was shocking, right? Like they were the biggest, they had like this big sex appeal. They were, you yeah. know what I mean? They had Elon Musk behind it. He could kind of do no wrong in like the disruptive business world. Yeah. And I remember, um, I was actually with a good friend of mine when they made that call to the sales force and we're like, Hey, we're not, we're not doing direct sales anymore. And it wasn't much later than that, that they just kind of stopped doing solar as an independent solar yeah. company. What happened to them would happen to other companies if they had access to the capital. And I'll explain that, but most solar companies hit and hit a ceiling we could say a glass ceiling, but once you hit like 60 megawatts, um, like you have to make a decision on, do you, are you going to invest in expansion? And, and, and uh, you have to really be, you know, forecasts have to be really, really tightly aligned, unless you have access to capital and build yourself some runway, which Solar should have kept doing. And so we were at like a gigawatt a year, but you're essentially, and you're planning on doubling each year. But what you don't realize is that like your production per person and like per person standing in a retail store or per door-to-door -door rep, like the first 50 door-to-door -door reps, are, they're just gonna be more productive than the last 50, right? They, the first ones to come over, they probably had experience. There's only so many talented people that can close at certain rates. And then if you're standing in Home Depot year one versus year seven, probably have a lot of the same people walking through the store that year seven and your you know, leads per rep are gonna go down. And so that was one of the big things that, you know, brought, brought that to. You were starting to notice this, like, yeah. were you like early on noticing like, Hey, this trend is going the wrong way or. Yeah. Like cat, like that's why door to door is so nice is it has predictable costs cause they're variable, right? Yeah. If you get an install, we pay you and that's the main cost. And so I was, my big thing is like, Hey, we need to invest more in this so we can have predictable costs because right now we're making all these bets on retail and leads and malls and stuff. And, and a lot of them were new and we were making assumptions that we didn't really know how to back up. And we understood the cost side decently, decently. We didn't understand the proceeds side super well, meaning if we're selling it, you know, these sun hours at this rate in this market, it makes a different amount of money than another market. And mainly what was being chased at that point, you probably remember this, but all the talented people went to the largest system size markets. Yeah. Um, and it seems so obvious to me. It, it's yeah. crazy to me that a company that had that access to capital that was so sophisticated, because now I look at it, I'm like, well, duh. Like, yeah. 
you your 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 incentive plan drove people to unprofitable places. Yeah, and the, and like total number of panels installed. Yeah, right? and so and then that was the whole. But it's part like you need the, more panels because the, the system's inefficient. Yeah. So it's yeah. just getting worse and worse. You yeah, know? but that was the strategy. I right? get more efficient panels to offset that, which never actually came to fruition. Um, and then obviously when when Tesla uh, bought Solar City, the two cultures didn't mesh. Right, Tesla's build a product so compelling that you don't need a Salesforce. And so, you know, door-to-door -door was the opposite of that culture and just didn't work out. Do you remember when they gave the door-to-door -door reps, like, for you guys that don't know this, they, they had like a, it was a conference call. It was like the decision was made and then they're like, hey, let's all get on a conference I call. I was on that call. Yeah. yeah. Fired all the door-to-door -door reps and then they gave them, what was it, like 1500 bucks? They're like, there was like a, there was like a if you'd severance. you worked for a certain amount of time, yeah, which like, is only like half the people. You right? don't have a job, but here's 1500 bucks and it's like, yeah. 1500 bucks and we're, like, and we're gonna keep your pipeline yeah, yeah. we're gonna install like yeah, i think yeah. they had a certain amount of time but then yeah they got 1500 bucks yeah. and that was it yeah it's crazy it was crazy day um but yeah then i kind of shopped around for a month or so came in met paul and chance just felt like the best culture fit um they were you know they thought about the business in a way that made a lot of sense to me and also the role felt right right i felt like i learned a lot but they gave you know meeting you and others, like like working as a team together, we could accomplish a lot. And that's the main reason I decided to come over to Vivint Solar and now Sunrun. You were really highly regarded when you came in. I remember I didn't, I didn't know much about your work, but both Paul and Chance, I think maybe Jordan met you before me, and everyone's like, he's so smart, he's gonna help us like get the business figured out. And before that, in our company, we were kind of like a, like a Salesforce. And it was a we were we were still like a culture mostly like spawned off from alarm culture, but we didn't we hadn't yet really invested in strategy and analytics, which sounds crazy because again you're you're dealing with so much capital and risk and things like that, and we were just door by door just <laughs> recklessly growing. Yeah. But then it was really cool to see like the fusion of your skill set. Like now I look back at it and I'm like I don't know how we made a single decision without you and your team before, you uh, know? I mean, it, it, to, to everyone's credit, it's like you guys are building the airplane while you're flying it, right? right. And, and it's something that I felt like I had the opportunity to do when I got here is like, give me two or three months, let me dig through the data and drain, you know, all the unnecessary, you know, data points and KPIs that probably maybe we should or shouldn't be focusing on and come out with at least two or three directives that I think can help the company. And the first thing was the combine, right? It's like, how do, the first thing I noticed is, look, we hire people, we have an indefinite amount of time that they can make money with their first signatures. But what that does is it causes them to dual track and they don't treat the job seriously. And I think I'll eventually get to selling and make that money while I'm also looking for another job. Let's make it so they only have 60 days to make that money. So they have to go out and knock doors and it puts off them looking for another job, get retention rates up and get people here. You know, if they get five welcome calls, they're here a year from now that, you know, triple the rate. So that was one thing. And then I just had the luxury of actually taking a step back while everyone else is building the plane while flying it hmm. to, to see what's the next component we need to add to the plan that could add the most value. What's that process like for you? Um, and do you like it? Like, do you like that process of, of saying, hey, give me this, give me access to your portal. Huh. Let me, and, and let me just deal with the mess. Like to me, it almost feels like, hey, show me your records room and then leave me alone for a couple months. And you come out with these two or three like really articulate points. And the reason I ask is because 
very different people. That's why we're great teammates. If you gave that job to me, the energy would just leave my body, partly because I don't have the confidence to do it and partly because it it doesn't excite me. But you could probably give me something that to you would not excite you and I'm all over it, you know? It's part of the reason, like, you and me, and I put Jason Dilstra in this realm too, like such a good yin and yang. I'm like, hey, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I think could improve the company. How do we systematically approach that? How do we make this relevant for the people out on the doors? Yeah. Um, and you guys always figure it out. And so it's like, it's a really, it's really been a good complimentary, um, you know, uh, relationship that I've had with, with uh, specifically you and Jason Dilstra, and, uh, but there's definitely others. Um, but to answer your question, I, I do enjoy that, like, but you get like diminishing returns. Like if, I, if you give me one week or you give me three months, I probably get 90% hmm. of what I'm gonna get in one week and the other 10% would come over the next two months and three weeks. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that I feel like that I've done over my career is figure out when do I hit the threshold where I'm getting diminishing returns with my time. Um, and so like I, if, if I'm digging into whether it's how to make the company more profitable, find more volume in a specific market, if I'm looking at this for more than two or three hours, then I probably, I stop. I'm like, I've probably figured out 80% of what'll make this work. and It'll probably take me another 10 hours to figure out the next 20%. It'd be worth more to the company if I start on the next project rather than complete this one. And, and not project, mm. but just like the value uh, of your time. And I think that applies to everybody, right? I, I was just thinking the you, same thing. You can work on your pitch or whatever only so much, and then you start having a, an inflection point where you're getting diminishing returns. Go work on something else and develop that. Because the first, you know, hour to whatever that time frame is that you're working on it is usually the most beneficial to you and others. Do you, um, how do you, are you the type, are you a perfectionist? Are you the type of person that it's hard for you to drop it and not do that last 10% or does the efficiency trump it and you like to be efficient so it's easy to leave that messy 10 or 20%? It, it depends on what it is a little bit, right? So usually it's efficiency. I, my, I'm definitely for making a good decision today is better than making a great decision tomorrow. Um, it, you know, moving forward, um, even if it's not exactly in the right direction, is better than standing still. Um, the only thing I will say is I'm a perfectionist on getting my point across. Like if I feel like what I'm saying isn't being understood, and sometimes what I'm saying is is something that isn't widely uh, accepted or maybe it's controversial. If I think it's important, I will, I'm a perfectionist on making sure I've gotten my point across and everybody understands. Um, even if they reject it and like, no, we're not going to do that. Just to make sure that uh, I, my one, people understand and two, like the, it was my, it was my time wasted because it doesn't actually add value or it's so hard to implement or would be so disruptive to like day to day that that's why we didn't do it. So then not when I go to the next thing, I know how to cater it and, and make it better for when I bring up another idea. Well, and there's like a value based thing to that too, right? Cause if it's like, I understand that question where it's like, are we saying no to this? Cause it's hard or because it's wrong. Cause if it's yeah. hard, I have a problem with that. If it's wrong, let me explain this again. Cause I actually think it's right. Right. Like yeah. it, but also it probably is hard because you, you, because of your background and because of what you know and because of your ability to like come through it. Like the other question is, is it wrong or do you not understand? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And, and if it's hard, it's like that'll take a year, you know, to actually get any value. And like, and that's 
you know, if we need money today, I'm like, then yeah, that's why we shouldn't do this because it's just going to take too long to actually extract value. So that then I can be like, okay, yeah. that's why, and then move on to the next thing. What are some of the biggest strategic shifts or initiatives that you've been a part of that you're proud of? Uh, like historically or like right now? Well, no, just historically in the industry because this industry has changed from, I mean, you mentioned initially to go value based on each system versus yeah. blanket, you sure. know, commission rate. Um, but, you know, now we're moving into batteries and we've moved before from TPO and then we enabled loan and now we're kind of moving back mostly to TPO. We've worked on combine, we've worked yeah. on new reps. We've worked on growing markets and shrinking markets. We've grown more channels here. We've closed retail channels. Like yeah. we've, we've had so many strategic decisions. What have been some of the biggest and most like uh, fulfilling or exciting ones that you've worked on? Yeah, um, or maybe ones that you look at and you're like, man, that was right. And that changed the course of the industry. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, like holistically, it's been working with all the leaders. Um, Paul, Chance, you, Jordan, everyone else to like work together to build the muscle to be limber um, mm. and flexible because the market changes so quickly and especially the last 18 months, that is what's kept us ahead. So it's interesting over the last four years, the market was relatively stable between interest rates and products. Um, it's pretty much the same offering um, and uh, the same uh, uh, utility rates. Um, same products right and so when you're a big company like us innovating is going to take longer than the person who has a very stable environment stable capital st stable decision making they can work on their little design tool or their you know turn times in that one market but then when it all got shooken up by interest rates and cost of modules and um and supply chain constraints we had the muscle ready to pivot very quickly because we all trust each other and we all um, understand our strengths and weaknesses and can move very quickly. So, you know, the market last quarter largely um, beside, outside of California shrunk by like 20% or we grew by 20, 25%. And the reason is because we understand what adds value and we buy into that and we execute very quickly. So like holistically, what I'm most proud of is building the connective tissue with all the leaders to understand how to thread that needle of volume and unit economics and do so in a way that makes sense for the business rather than like look around like what do we do and kind of have our, yeah. our, our, our hands in our pockets. Or back to that initial decision making thing where it's like I know what we need to do but we're not tough enough, fast enough, skilled enough, value-based enough to do it. Because we did some hard stuff, right? Sure. Like over the last six months, but it was made, it could have been a lot harder if you had to fight everybody into doing it, right? Like the, some of the financial decisions that we made probably saved the company, right? We're seeing a lot of companies that aren't yeah. flourishing, that are exiting profitable markets because they didn't either have the resources or skills or foresight to do the yeah. work. But that is, that's probably the perfect answer because it literally, like this whole company works better together than it ever has, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and I, that, that's the thing that I think is most, that interests me most about your career is business analytics and strategy is one thing, but being a trusted strategist and consultant is quite another, you know what I mean? And I feel like that's not a job you can get promoted to. It's, it's influence, right? So like, you ever read John Maxwell's stuff on leadership? Some of it, yeah. It's super good. But he, he basically says that 
leadership is influence, no more, no less. So it's like the title in, in like street sales and stuff doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right. Like you can call someone a manager, but if they're ineffective, like they just won't really do much. And so I'll often tell guys like in the street, like a leader will either help you or be nothing at all. I don't believe it'll hurt you. Right. And so, but when I look at your role, it's leadership because you have genuine influence or else we wouldn't move that fast or else the tissue wouldn't connect. We used to have a culture here against fighting against other channels and, and it would just be these long drag out debates and the person that was like the most obstinate would kind of win them. But yeah. now the decisions are made a lot faster, a lot more co cohesively and the results are a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. And not to say that I'm, the one connecting all the tissues, but to say oh, I'm in that part of the process and working together for the best, what I see is the best outcomes. Shift in California is a great example, right? There's a lot of collaboration, a lot of work that went into that to one, being able to sell on M2 till April 3rd, and then having a product that optimizes customer outcomes day one of NEM3, April 15th. We're the only ones to do that, right? right? And then you had to coordinate between PF, supply chain, sales, uh, no stuff on my team with pricing um and uh it's really really awesome to see that that outcome where everyone else is still kind of still figuring it out and yeah some stop trying to figure it out yeah, but that's right i do think i do think it's collaborative i do think it's a group effort but i think the i think the like um i've been calling it empowerment data lately i don't know if that's the right thing but i, I believe empowerment data is like what i get on my watch that tells me oh this is how you're sleeping it empowers me to make better decisions. And so I think we had information before, we didn't have empowerment data. Hmm. And I think that's really something that you've brought to where, well, here's another way to think of it. And, and since we have that in droves here as like a strategic advantage, like the fact that you and your team can present the information needed so that we can move cohesively, that's the piece that I think we can't function with that. And you lead that group. You know what I mean? So it's like, gotcha. if we yeah. didn't have that, and it could be said too, if we didn't have sales culture, if we didn't have yeah. like financial strategy and stuff, but in an industry that's this new, that doesn't have, you know, like if you were going to consult a basketball team on how to be more successful, you can comb through hundreds of years of data through great teams, coaches, history, and you can come out and you can find stuff. But here you kind of had to make, you'd ha you've had to decide what are the important things. You've had to figure them out, start to track untrackable things previously. It's like, I always feel that way when I read Malcolm Gladwell. I'm like, how do you find the research for this kind of yeah, stuff? The Bomber Mafia book is a great example. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, well, he makes it. His yeah. brain has a hunch that's based off like billions of bits of data unique to who he is, and then he figures out a way to track it and then tells a story. And now, yeah. I mean, who refutes 10,000 hours? We're like, yeah, I mean, seems right because he's done the work and no one else could, but that's kind of like... I'm a fan of yours, as you can tell, but it's kind of like what you've brought to the yeah. business. If it's like, dude, hundred percent, I'm all, I agree because I know you've done the work. I, I'd, I'd say like what's gotten me to that point is like, I, I try to find a way to stay curious and things that, um, that, uh, I feel like can influence the business and forming a hypothesis and then not getting, uh, uh, feeling defeated or feeling, uh, down if my hypothesis doesn't pan out like yeah. if I think some uh, if I think a is correlated with B and then I run through a bunch of data scenarios and then oh they're actually not correlated I'm not like burr, 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 and like I don't move on <laughs> to the next thing your it's confidence is shot it's probably like one out of eight one out of ten times that like I have a hypothesis 
I do an analysis or something I'm like, oh, actually these two things are pretty, this thing's actually pretty influential. Then I start chatting with all of the different business leaders. Like, this is what I think the value, can we actually do this? Okay, great, let's go and execute on it. And so that's the thing I would say is like, you know, stay curious, form a hypothesis on what you think will add, would add more success um, in your career or your life. And then like, don't be discouraged if it doesn't pan out, just move on to the next one. Do you consider yourself a creative person? Creative, like Brad Kramer creative, no. Creative in a way, I'd say what I'm good at is connecting dots that are seemingly, uh, that seem like they're unconnectable, like, and finding the correlations and causations. And, and so looking at pl in places where other people wouldn't look and seeing how all the variables actually work together rather than thinking they're just kind of like different points in a database that don't actually connect in any way, shape, or form. So I would say like I'm creative in that way. I've always been able to find ways in which either life events are influenced from seemingly unrelated things and then same thing with like in, in data processes. That's actually like pretty much spot on. Like one of my favorite definitions of creativity, I read a lot of books on creativity because I'll always... Um, for sales, which is mostly my world, to me there's nothing more creative than making a sale. But one of the, or, or making a team or making a culture yeah. or whatever. But one of my favorite definitions of creativity is the combination of two unlike things to make something that didn't exist before. Yeah, you're really good at that. But yeah. that's what you're saying, right? Like yeah. it's like, I do think that's what you do. I think you've created, honestly, you've created kind of an, this could be an industry, right? You could do like, you know, empowerment or consultative or predictable analytics for this type of industry. I bet you could go in, if a, if a company had data, you could go in, collect it, and within hours with your kind of your 80 or 90% rule, tell them, hey, these are the three things you need to focus on, which is cool. It's highly creative, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also, once somebody's paved a way creatively, then it's so much faster the next time. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I get that. Yeah, that makes sense. I consider you a creative person. Well, appreciate it. Yeah, it's 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 not a advertisable creative thing, right? It's not like I'm an artist or or you know software developer or anything. So it's like not you know most people don't see into that side. But I appreciate that. Well, I think you are too. And, and also, like when when Jordan and I work closely together, one of the things that work well for us is I tell stories with visuals and rhetoric, and he tells stories with data. And to some people, my method just doesn't really hit they're like get to the point and for some people his method they're like i don't get it or whatever but i think you've been able to move an industry based on it, that's what it is you're essentially telling story and yeah. revealing direction with it's with data and with corollary information you know yeah. um let's talk for a second about your dance moves oh interesting <laughs> interesting pivot <laughs> For you guys that don't know this, Parker's got a wicked set of dance moves. First, they first they showed up in Tahiti for me. Yeah, they don't come out very often, but I did win eighth grade office at Kaysville Junior High by doing a thriller Michael Jackson adaptation. So, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was it a was it like a like a recreation of it or your own interpretation of it? O own interpretation, you know, with some you know, I like to. I don't take myself too. I don't take myself seriously at all. So it's usually to generate laughs dancing is generate some you know some sort of comic outcome I can generally you know, get that out of people uh, but yeah I, d I don't whip them out as often anymore I was gonna say that I think that 
correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you judge the quality of the work you're doing either by A, accuracy, or B, the amount of laughs it gets. Oh, yeah. I, I have what a... What if it's accurate and you get laughs? It's like, oh, boom. That's amazing. Like, comedians to me are some of the most talented people, right? You could have Circus Day Olay, 50 gymnasts and all these, you know... Circus Day Olay. Whatever Soleil, that bro. is. Whatever it is. <laughs> fireworks and, like, like people are, like, moderately entertained, maybe entertained and clapping. Or you can have one guy with a microphone captivating the entire audience. That, that That's talent. It's yeah. the most vulnerable of professions right yeah yep it's literally like and if you have a bad show you can't blame it on the band <coughs> no it's just you yeah who's your favorite who, who do you like as far as comedy goes oh that's tough um stand up stand up i mean jim gaffigan's funny i know uh uh who's the guy that jordan introduced me to i can't gargazzi yeah gargazzi's kind of funny he's good i like i like the kind of like the witty not in your face type humor yeah um more subtle. I also. Do you know Gary Goldman? I've listened to some Gary Goldman. He's, He's good. good. Yeah, um, but like, I love going to like any comedy show, even if they're not that funny. The fact that they get up there and try and like put themselves out there, even if it's like awkward, awkward's funny to me. So. Would you ever do a comedy bit? I've Is that almost something that inspires you or terrifies I've you? I've almost, I've almost done. It. Conway almost got me to do it. If you guys know Conway yeah, West, yeah. he, he every I think every year has ten things that scare him that he forces himself to do. One time was doing stand-up comedy. If Conway couldn't get you to do it, I don't know if you're gettable. I almost did. We went because to a comedy show. Because he's the most inspiring with stuff like that. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but one of these days, I, I feel like if I'm in the right room with the right people, I, I no one's funnier than me. But but it doesn't happen super often. Like the stars have to align. And like, the, the, could that be on a stage of where I'm not like? with people it's usually like conversationally i'm funny so i think stand up let's a whole set a goal to go to a comedy show this year i would like to experience that with you all right let's do it i saw seinfeld um a couple years ago and it was life-changing really he is so i mean he's like the consummate professional you know sure. he's kind of like he takes the craft seriously he's been doing it forever yeah it doesn't need to do it but still creates new material and goes out yeah. and it's like it's it's the comedian, the suit, the stool, the water, the microphone. That's it. Yeah. For an hour and a half straight, and he yeah. kills it. Been doing it for forty five years. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I've started sharing it with my son, so Rocco's thirteen now. And on the last league trip, we had some downtime, and so I introduced him to Brian Regan, you know, because he's like yeah. over the top, and like I thought my preteen son would think it's funny. And he's like, where has this been my entire life? That's awesome. Yeah, dude. He just absolutely loves it. Oh, man. Um, what are some of the goals that you have for your career? Or what are some of the things that you would like to tackle? What, what excites you that's still yet to be done? I mean, honestly, like I like to bring in more and more, I guess, like mark, call it market share, but just like now I'm looking at how is our fleet performance doing and like, why are we buying the right equipment for best customer outcomes and best financing options? Um, how, are we challenging the status quo on there's really just solar loans and solar PPAs, right? Is there something else out there that actually would appeal to people and, and can we finance it a different way? Hint, um, hint. There um, might be. Yeah, there could be. <laughs> um, and like uh, um, understanding like our, what are different ways in which we can drive revenue besides deploying solar, right? Um, where we've created 700,000 customers doing that. What's the next thing where we can create another 700,000 customers? Because there's only so many households with the right roofs and the right markets. And eventually, I, I, I want to get ahead of, you know, 
hitting any roadblocks that way. So those things really interest me. That's um, good timing for that. Um, yeah. As we talk about becoming a lifestyle company, yeah. one of the things that I, um, that, you know, when, when, when you look at what the definition of a lifestyle company is, one of the indicators is new economies, which is really cool. So think about that, like with, um, Apple's the easiest one to talk about all the time, but they, they were focused on, you know, Mary would say crushing the fundamentals, but like, have you read Steve Jobs' book that Walter Isaacson did? No. Uh-uh. It, it's pretty good. But he talks about like when Steve came back, how he basically said no to everything Apple was doing, said yes to like four things, simplified their company, said yes to the basics. Yeah. But then because they were focused on being a lifestyle company, new economies came out. So like App Store didn't exist. There wasn't an apps. That yeah. wasn't a thing. Yeah. Uh, Apple Music, Apple TV, all that stuff, just new economies. iTunes. iTunes, yeah. So like when you think about energy, not yeah. solar, but like yeah. energy, I think 10 years from now, we'll be able to look back and be like, we didn't used to do, I don't reveal anything that we're like starting to talk about, but like, yeah. I can't believe we didn't used to do that. Sure. Like, I can't think of like, how did somebody not think of apps? It was right there. Well, it's easy in hindsight, yeah. but I think for us to become a new, uh, a full lifestyle company where people have emotional connectivity to the improvement of lifestyle that they get through association yeah. with us will open up new economies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think people are going to create and own their own power and decide what they want to do with it. And, uh, rather than move into a house, accept whatever utility rates are in the utility company and, and get a bill each month. Um, it's, it's ripe for disruption and we're just at the tipping point of that for sure. Yeah. I think it'll, uh, and I'm, I'm excited about, I think about like, um, I like design, I like architecture and stuff. And so you think about like in like the 50s, 60s, early 70s when, um, you know, like well-known architects would like design communities. So they would think about how people are gonna live in those communities and how they're gonna interact and, and you know, how, how the architecture would fit with the landscape and that kind of stuff. And you kind of get in like the 80s and 90s and they started to like maximize for efficiency and fit yeah. as many like lots in there and stuff. Um, but I like to think in the future, like when we build energy and power, will be a piece of it. Like when they build smartphones and smart tech now, they're thinking, how are we going to power this and how is it going to fit and what's it going to look like? But with houses, you're right. We just plug it into this dumb system. But maybe in the future we think, okay, here's the design, here's the home. How are we going to power this? Yeah. Right. Or maybe, you know, the energy companies of the future go to them and say, here's a better way to use this fuel system or these, you know, these couple different types of fuel systems to power your home. Yeah. And it's independent and it allows people more protection of their, of their comforts and stuff. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I, it, it's crazy to me that the essentially energy infrastructure hasn't changed in 80 years. Right. Um, you see giant ugly lines going through your neighborhood or underground and you might actually accidentally hit one. Um, and like everything else we do, almost everything else we do is digital. Um, satellites there's no wires no lines eventually it's going to get to the point where none of that stuff will be necessary Um, uh, just uh, you know a lot of infrastructure and a lot of you know uh, utilities who are have a a lot of influence in the political sphere that we need to get get past and we will here in the short future in my opinion yeah I think so too it's funny that like if if you saw so many building power lines now you'd be like that's cra- what are you doing yeah that's crazy yeah 
like lacing them with helicopters, you know, Spend they like run those lines. Miles and miles. It's crazy. Bad storm, a tree goes down. Yeah. And then someone has to drive out to the desert and fix it yeah. by hand. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Um, what are, you spend a lot of time consulting the business and the executives and the board and things like that on the direction that you think the company should go to be most impactful. Um, most of the people listening to this are people that represent the company to customers, new reps, right? What do you think that, what would help new reps to understand about the business? What do you, what do you, what advice would you give them to be successful in their world with what you know? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and like, and why Sunrun too in that, yeah. right? Um, there's a few things. I think like one is, I don't, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, like 40-ish to 50% of all solar systems that are on somebody's roof or installed or financed by a company that is no longer in business, right? Um, Sunrun has been around for 15 years. It's one of the oldest solar companies. We also have the most relationships with big banks. And so like we're not going anywhere. And, uh, and like hopefully that gives people in reps confidence that like you're working for the right company because we're gonna take care of the customer for 25 years. Um, and I think what's helpful to know as well is like um, the, the industry and in, in the way that it's moved of all the companies that have moved around or gone out of business or like most of them are less than three years old, two or three years old. And so think of any company, like the average lifespan of any individual company uh, if it's going to be successful, it's got to get past three or four years. Like right? you've heard that, like re most restaurants don't last a year. Well, most new businesses don't last three years. And so, like, think about why you're working here and why you're not working somewhere else. And have they proven out that they can be successful? Probably not, because they haven't even been in business long enough to know. And like, in, in like uh, year one, you figure out the business. Year two, you start to operationalize things. Year three, you start to scale. Scaling solar is the hardest thing to do. That's right. That's why. That's why I said like there's a glass ceiling of like 60 megawatts, and that's like there's only 12 players in the industry that do that. And so like know that we have figured it out, and we're the only vertically vertically integrated company, and and we can coordinate and we can move fast as the market moves. And so like we're not going anywhere and the uh your your pipeline is going to get paid your customers are going to get taken care of and nobody's going to be left out on an island or orphaned which has been happening a lot the last 18 months yeah i think a lot of people don't think about that because you know the the thing i love about the salesforce is they it's not just the company that they represent like a lot of times when things are when we're fixing something or we're it's more when we're moving into another phase. You know, there's phases yeah. of, you know, at, at, at 30 megawatts, the service is really fast. You can do one-off type things. Once you get to 40, you kind of need to systematize. Once you get to 60, you need a whole different infrastructure, yep. right? Yep. And so when, whenever we've been going through those transitions and people have been frustrated, I found that reps are generally the most defeated when they feel like they've misrepresented something to a customer. Mm -hmm. When they say, hey, this person, I created a relationship with them. I told them they'd be happy that they went with us. I told them that to expect this timeline and that wasn't true and I feel bad. I, I actually think most of frustration from reps in, is interpreted by that if, if ever we're going through like an evolutionary phase. And so I do think that's really important to let's say look around. Like whenever they say, oh, this company's paying more for this five minutes or this company offers yeah. a cheaper battery or this company can do their installs faster, you're putting an asset on a roof that's likely to be without service 
I, I, I had this situation personally. So your wife is from my hometown where I live. And we have a mutual friend who wanted to get solar with me. And they had solar from um, a previous company. And I was like, well, what's the deal with the solar on your roof? He's like, I don't know. He was paying, he moved into a house that had solar. He was paying every single month, like a couple hundred bucks for it. And he could not get a hold of somebody. So what had happened is whoever the solar company was had sold the contract off to somebody else. They were collecting every month and the system wasn't, didn't wow. know if it was working, didn't wow. know if it wasn't working. And to me, that was crazy. But yeah. that's 40 to 50% of solar homes are in that situation. Yeah, so when you think about building a career, if there's a high probability that you're gonna install something that's gonna be without service, that's a big deal to your reputation, to how yeah. you feel about the industry, to how you feel, you know what I mean? To yeah. how high you can actually go. And that's why I like our product, our PPA and lease, right? Is, is our financing is tied to us ensuring that the system is producing at a, at a certain acceptable level and that we're going to be servicing it for the full contract length, right? I don't think people understand that we set aside about, for solar-only systems, so not a battery, we set aside about $8,000 per customer that we know we're going to have to eventually dip into to replace the inverter, to pay out performance guarantees, to service the to service it because it's not communicating. Where like think of any other operator in the industry, if they got that eight thousand dollars, you think they're keeping it in their bank to help the customer in year twelve? Probably not, um, because they're not tied with their financing company holding them accountable, as well as thinking long term as a publicly traded company that they're going to be around for the next fifty years. So. Um, that's something I th think people don't realize is that we plan for those things in our financial forecasts, not like we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there and have these unexpected costs and outcomes hit us. And so that's something that I think is really important. The first house I ever bought was like a mile and a half down the road from here. And um, I got a, uh, it was crazy cheap. It was a little townhouse. It was 140,000 bucks. Nice. And I qualified for like a first time home buyer loan. So it was like a free down payment thing. And uh, I was stoked on it. It was awesome. I lived there for six months and then the stucco on the outside kind of had some problems and the driveway, it wasn't like cured right. And so it turned to just shale after a uh, winter. It, like as I shoveled it, the driveway would just like <laughs> shovel down into the road. Uh. Uh, and so I called the company that built my house and they were no longer in business. So oh, who paid for the driveway? You did. I did. Yeah. Right? Like, and it was awesome to get a good rate until the second I was like, oh, there's risk associated with the people that you go into business with. Yeah. yeah. You know? Uh, if, if you look at the life cycle and the historic kind of like last two or three years in the solar industry, people also just didn't know what it costs to run an operations business. Yeah. And, and so they were, you know, if, if they would give red lines, which is essentially if the account is worth um, a certain amount of money, you get paid the delta between whatever that red line is, let's say it's $10,000 and the account's worth $15,000, you get five grand. And so they're setting these red lines to try to get market share and not knowing all the costs that go along with it. And a lot of companies run out of business, you know, Pink Energy, Empire. And then the next phase is like, okay, they're not competing on red lines as much, they're competing on turn times, right? And what was happening then is there's they're cutting corners to get these 30, 20 day install timelines, but then the customer's not PTOing for a year, year and a half. Or their roof leaks or? Yep, and, and then uh, that, that money's being clawed back and they're trying to get back from the dealer and they're not giving it to them. And so then that causes them to go out of business. And so there are a lot of nearsighted 
things or short-term things that are being done without understanding long-term consequences because they haven't been in business long enough to understand those ramifications. And so when I look at the solar landscape right now, turn times are about the same. If you, if you look at, on average, our customers that go beyond 180 days uh, from install and not getting PTO'd, it's less than 4%. When I look at other installers who use our product or don't use our product, at that time when they were all competing for the same sales talent, they're more than 20%. Over 180 days not PTO'd. And Jeez. so there's financial costs mm -hmm. and there's also customer frustration costs. You're not getting a referral from that customer. And so, and then I think reps don't think about that, right? They think, how do I get this thing installed the fastest and get paid? But guess what? If that customer doesn't get PTO'd in, you know, uh, fast timeline, you're probably not getting a referral from that customer, so your next sale is going to be even harder. So you might end up made an extra $200 on that person at, when they got installed, but you're not going to make $3,000 on that person when you try to go get a referral, right? So those are the things I think um, reps are starting to understand and like yeah. why we've had a lot of people come back is because of that nearsighted nature of the business that kind of happened between 2019 and, and now, and the people are coming around. We... Uh it's kind of like, you know, as we've been looking at the economic times and fear of recession and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's been interesting to follow like the markets because they'll say, oh, okay, this is just like 2008 or this is just like 1980, but it's not as bad as 19, whatever, right? Like yeah. we have all this data. To me, the, the small under-resourced company story is as old as my career and probably older. It goes like this. Somebody starts a company, they do really well. Someone looks at that company with what they think is all of the information and they think, oh, they're making all this money, I should go start my own company because then I would make all this money. And so they do the math, right? And say, okay, an account is worth this, this is what it costs to install it, put a little bit aside, oh my gosh, they are making X amount of money. And then they start the business and what they don't realize is all the costs they didn't see. Yeah. They've never been sued. They don't realize how expensive that is. They've, you know, uh, state changes their licensing. You didn't factor in the service rate. The, you know, a customer needs three service visits in the first five years, not one. Yeah. Uh, inverters go out after eight to 10 years. You put that at 15 years. And so eventually they're like, oh, you can't make money. And it's weird because frankly for me, and we're not hearing a lot of it now, but early days of solar, it's the same thing from alarms, it's the same thing from pest control, it's the same thing from dish, it's the same thing from insulation, doors, windows, whatever, and solar. But it's hard because every rep that hears, oh, this person is potentially paying more money elsewhere, they discount the history where it's like, hey, I know this is the first time you've heard it, but this is the 10,000th time we've seen it. How, yeah. many biz how many solar companies do you know of that have tried to operate on a thin margin, miscalculated, and are not in business anymore? I mean, could you even count them? It's so, it's so many. Yeah. And it's in your 10 years here. Yeah, nine yeah. years uh, less than that but yeah yeah it's a lot right yep it's crazy and but they're always you know it's 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 i think it's just a life principle it's the thing yeah. of the day right so i think the main thing i'm hearing is have a long-term mindset and then uh the thing i appreciate is for reps to hear this and understanding that someone like you is in charge of helping set those projections and strategies because frankly a lot of us will never know what you know and have the 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 ability to, to calculate and strategize like that. And so it's really good to know that we're in good hands. And for every one of you, there's another one of you in finance and there's another one of you in operations. There's another one of you in customer experience. And I think if the company's big and sustainable, those people flock to it, right? Like, and, and eventually this army is one that's it's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, I agree. Know? Yeah, well said.
What are some of your guilty pleasures? Ooh. Um, oh, this is a, that's a good question. Recent, uh, one of my guilty pleasures as of late is singing auditions, like on X Factor. Or bad singing auditions or good singing good. auditions? Good. I can't stand the bad ones. Yeah. The good ones. The good ones. You the, like uh, the voice or what? Uh, Mass singer. It's, it depends on what mood, kind of mood I am, and if I'm in like more of a nostalgic, uh, you know, and and uh, empathetic mood, then I'll watch maybe uh, America's Got Talent. That golden buzzer gets me. Mm. It gets me. And then mm. the slow mo with the, with the, with <laughs> Just the golden dreams toilies. coming true. And, and you know, and they're and, and uh, they're singing in the background. The twelve year old on stage is just so excited. And sometimes it's like you know, Little American Idol. Just a really good voice. I. I enjoy, um, yeah, good, good singing audition for some reason lately has been, has been scratching that itch for me. As far I love as that. Pleasures. Yeah. Um, if you didn't do, if you could pick any profession, regardless of whether you have the skill set for it or not, Ooh. money wasn't an option. What would you do? Oh man. Any profession. Yeah, that's tough. Honestly, like what's most important for me is the people I work with and the, uh, problems I get to solve, and so like I, the profession isn't isn't as important mm. for me. It's more of the people I work with, but I do think like professions that could have interesting people would be the entertainment industry. Uh, I think there's a lot of unique personalities there that drive, you know, that 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 go there. Um, and so I don't know. Maybe since we're on the subject of comedians, maybe maybe a comedian or something along those lines. Maybe on a sitcom that'd be fun. I think that's what you should do then when you have the money to not need money anymore. Go for it. Full comedian circuit. Yeah. Try to get on a sitcom, maybe something like that. You'd yeah. be a great like writer. You could have like a Larry David slash writer. Seinfeld like partnership. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, you you're always good with the the out of left field questions, or is it right field? Yeah. I think it's left field, isn't it? Mm. I wonder why left field. Right. I thought it was right field. Depends on if you're the batter, if you're left-handed, or you're right-handed. Yeah. Do you have any left-handed kids? I have two lefties. I have no lefties. Mm. But I have my fourth kid on the way. They might be left-handed. Plus, my others are three and nine months, so I don't know what hand they use. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, Parker, you're awesome. Thank Thanks, you for guys. sharing Thanks with for us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah man. Great. This has been so great. And I hope I hope people have the opportunity to listen and, and really take some of your wisdom to heart. Um, but more than anything, I'm grateful for your friendship. I'm grateful for the work that you put in. Every single person that's listening to this has benefited from your talents and your ability. So thanks for sharing with me. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. If you're listening to this and interested in joining our teams, DM us on Instagram at Run the League. What are you waiting for? Run the League, shoot us a DM, and let's get going. Hey, woo. <laughs>